The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The first thing I hear is the chickens (laughs) letting me know that it's time to let them out of their coop. I hear the fluttering of their wings as I open the chicken coop door. I hear my feet crunching on the grass as I'm walking down to the farm field. I hear birds chirping and singing, and sometimes it can be windy, so the wind will be blowing. I will feel the warm sun on my face, and I'll see the sun cascading down on our crops. And yeah, just feel a sense of pride. Welcome to Setting the Table, a podcast about Black cuisine and foodways. I'm Deb Freeman. I'm a writer that focuses on African-American foodways and the impact those foodways have on how we cook and eat today. On our last episode, we talked about the rise of a new generation of African-Americans who have decided to pursue farming as a profession, either by returning to their family's land or setting up their own farm. This week, we conclude our series on Black farming by going to the farms themselves. On this episode, we'll talk with three young farmers who are taking on the legacy of Black farming in their own way. Whether it's starting a farm from scratch, creating educational programs for youth, or creating financial systems to help Black farmers sustain and thrive. Our first stop is a farm located in the hills of Hayward, California across the bay from San Francisco, and 20 miles south of Oakland. My name is Ashley Johnson-Geis, and I'm the founder and farmer of a small-scale farm called Brown Girl Farms. During the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown, people coped in different ways. Pretty much everyone was either baking sourdough bread or taking up a hobby like scrapbooking or something like that. But Ashley spent the lockdown planting the seeds, no pun intended, that would become Brown Girl Farms. At that point in my life, I was at a transition. I had just transitioned out of a role that I was holding in farm education, working with youth. And it was literally like a week before the pandemic hit. Of course, I had no clue that, you know, the pandemic was going to hit. And then we all found ourselves in quarantine. And at that time, my wife and I, we were living in Berkeley in a small condo. And really at that time is when Brown Girl Farms was first formed out of a response that I had to seeing folks going into quarantine and all of a sudden having time on their hands to look at their space differently, growing spaces or maybe like pots that were in a corner or a balcony or a patch of grass outside of their house. And people were wanting to garden. They were wanting plant starts and seeds and produce and flower bouquets. And with my background being in farm and garden education, I was like, well, I have the skills to do this. And I was missing, you know, my community. 
And so I literally started out with like balcony pots and like a little greenhouse on our patio. And I started propagating plant starts and hand painting seed packets and growing a little bit of produce and making like produce packs that I would load up my SUV and do contactless deliveries to people. And that was Brown Girl Farms initially. Before there was even the physical farm here, the community was present. And through being able to provide these things to folks really gathered around us and they were like, what is Brown Girl Farms? You know, what are you doing? Then they would hear, oh, you don't actually have a farm. You know, where are you growing everything? And I was like, you know, we're right on our patio, you know. Confident in her mission, Ashley and her wife decided it was time to take their home project to the next level. And then my wife and I, we knew we wanted to look for some land and a home to start our family. And I also like to be transparent in saying, finding a home in the Bay Area that's connected to land, we are privileged in that we have some family inheritance and support. And we knew we wanted to honor our family, honor our ancestors in this way by finding land. And so it was a relatively quick process in the grand scheme. It took about four months or so. You know, so all along to our community, we're on Instagram and our community is seeing this process and they are seeing us go from the condo to looking for land to finding the home here in Hayward. And at the end of those, you know, couple of months, we were convinced that we were going to have to move out of the area, you know, to somewhere like Sacramento or Sebastopol. And my wife literally found, um, we're in unincorporated Hayward, so she found a listing for the home and farm that we're here at now living at. Um, the previous owner lived here for 35 years. He mainly had an apple orchard, so he had apple trees, and he told us he had sheep. <laughs> but for the most part, it was a blank slate, and it was almost like it was set up for Brown Girl Farms to come in. And so we wrote him a letter when we were putting an offer in, and we explained how we wanted to transform the home and the land. And at the end of the day, he selected us, and we were able to purchase the property. And so then Brown Girl Farms moved to what is now the farm. And really this past year, our community via Instagram has been able to see us literally start a farm from scratch. So everything from building by hand a 40 foot long hoop house to a chicken coop to we hand dug all of our, we have about 30, 50 foot long farm beds that we hand dug with community and friends and family wanting to really keep that sort of African indigenous, some of those practices by not bringing in a tractor to, you know, easily form those beds. So that's how it started and how we got to where we're at today. I was amazed to hear about how Ashley decided to till her farm by hand instead of relying on equipment. And I asked her why it was important for her to maintain that connection. Wanting to be able to do the work that my ancestors did to use some of the tools like the shovel, like the hoe, and stringing out the beds to really, I think, feel in my body. You know, we were opening up the earth and in that way connect to more of the traditional land practices prior to tractors and the industrial machinery being brought in and really keeping our footprint small and also inviting community in. There were so many hands in the beginning that literally touched the soil and it became a community effort. When we first started our community-supported agriculture program in the spring last year, only half of the field was hand-dug. 
And the rest was waiting. And so there was definitely that pressure. But at the same time, it was so important to keep those traditions alive. In building her own farm, Ashley decided to intentionally grow African-American heritage crops, including collard greens, black-eyed peas, and sweet potatoes. And I asked her why. I think that visibility to say our foods matter, to really be able to celebrate our food. Our histories are so deeply connected and intertwined with these crops. Being able to be proud as a farmer with these crops also educate our communities. You know, hey, this collard greens that you're looking at on your plate, let me show you the seed, or let me talk to you about how there's Black-owned seed companies and they're saving these seeds. Did you know you could save the seed from a collard green? Or you can also take a cutting, you know, of these tree collards. So. I'm saying collard greens a lot because that is definitely one of our main staple crops here on the farm. Collard greens are so important. Going back to my grandmother, when she would be in the kitchen showing me how to strip collard greens and having the paring knife and wielding it, and I would just be like, I want to be like you one day. <laughs> to now have her on the farm tending to the same greens that I at one point saw her in the kitchen stripping and washing and preparing. And now we're going all the way back to the beginning of when it starts from a seed. And so we grow a couple of varieties of collard greens. We also grow one of my favorites, which is purple tree collards. So it's actually because of my school garden background. I used to be a school garden teacher in Oakland, and it is one of the like official school garden crops of Oakland is the purple tree collards. They literally grow like a tree and they're a perennial, so they'll come back year after year. You don't have to replant them. And in addition to collard greens, we also this year especially are starting to really trial growing things like turnip greens that don't put so much emphasis on growing that turnip that we think of, but send up their energy into making more leaves. And so thinking about how I remember reading on the seed packet that this heirloom comes from the South and Southern folks ate this green and it was celebrated and it, the leaves are delicious. But we always think about ripping off the greens from the turnip and just eating the turnip. Not all of her endeavors yielded success, however. It doesn't always work. Last year, we tried to grow watermelons, and they were the size of, like, baseballs. I was still really excited. <laughs> and I harvested those, and, you know, and so there, there's definitely challenges. And I was like, I really wanted to grow watermelons, and I'm still learning. And it was just to be able to also have the agency to grow, because I am the owner and the founder, to say these crops matter, our foods matter. Because of that, we're going to grow them. The idea of a handheld watermelon sounds incredibly cute, but it's not going to taste good. Fun fact, my partner Fist and I grew over 100 heirloom watermelons two summers ago. I was lucky enough to grow them only for fun and to try to intimately understand how to make the sweetest watermelon possible. All of that stemmed from a drive from Virginia to South Carolina to try a Bradford watermelon, which can only be found in the small town of Sumter. The rind of the Bradford is so soft that it can't be transported, which is why it's not found commercially. When growing these watermelons, I learned that although the process is hard work and incredibly labor-intensive, the end result is incredibly satisfying. But back to Ashley. She's not only proud of the heritage crops that she grows, but also in her identity as a Black, 
female queer farmer? First and foremost, the representation. Just my physical being presence in our farm or out interfacing with the community. It says, I exist. I'm here. I am your farmer. Farmers look like me. I'm a farmer that matters. I can do it. Because so much of the time, being a Black, female, queer farmer, all those intersectionalities, when people are interfacing with me, there's this element of surprise. And all of these steps that people go through or that I have to go through around people interfacing with me, you know, and trying to grapple with, you know, you are a farmer. Well, first and foremost, they see that I'm Black and then I'm a woman. And then the more hidden identities, well, I'm also queer and here's my wife and we're in an interracial marriage, you know. There's that element of shock and surprise. And so for me, being visible in that way is to also show other Black queer farmers you matter and you deserve to be right here. Even the name of her farm makes it impossible to ignore who she is and what she represents. I think about that all the time, even just with when I was applying for my business license. There were moments where I was really nervous. How could stereotypes and racism play into even just my name. And before you even know anything about what the business is, what the farm is, you see the name. And so that issue of judgment coming up. But the name is so important and special to me. My mom actually named the farm. I have to give her credit. So back before there was any farm or any idea, she really always thought one day I would start some sort of land-based project. And when I was starting to talk about maybe eventually, you know, one day off in the future having a farm, she was like, well, I have a name, Brown Girl Farms. And it clicked. And I was like, you know, here I am now, you know, applying for my business license, thinking of a name. And I was like, that's it. Like, I'm a brown girl and I farm. And There's no questions about it. You know, the name says it all. And also the name, I feel like, really invites others in, holding Black identities, Brown identities. So it feels very familiar and inclusive to people as well. We go from the West Coast all the way to North Carolina on the East Coast, to visit a farmer who is making a personal impact for his community. My name is Kamal Bell. I'm a farmer, educator, father, I guess environmental activist. We're starting to get that label now. Kamal is the owner of Sankofa Farms, located in Cedar Grove, North Carolina, which serves the communities of Orange and Durham counties. The name Sankofa carries special meaning for Kamal. Sankofa is a term that comes out of West Africa, out of the Akan language, that means it's not taboo to fetch what has been lost. And for us, we look at it as a term that means remember your African ancestry. That's the thing that's been lost as we move forward in life. So the farm and the history of, in our experience, and who we are as African people here in America is centered to what we do at the farm. So we try to make sure that we always position ourselves and focus on ourselves and things that affect our community, and we address them from our perspective. Through Sankofa Farms, Kamal seeks to serve his community, first and foremost, as a producer of food to address the food insecurity issues that often plague Black communities. So Sankofa Farms is a farm that was started in 2016. I actually went through the Farm Service Agency in the USDA 
If anyone is familiar on the history of black farming, you know about the position of the USDA. The whole idea of the farm was to get people who are affected by food deserts access to healthy and affordable food. But then at the time, I was a little naive. I, it's not just as easy as starting a farm and then having the food and then getting to people. All of those things are three separate entities. So getting a farm is very difficult. Building infrastructure and accessing the capital is very difficult. And then working with the community is very, very difficult. For us, we struggled through the first three years. Year four and five were a more foundational years for us as far as building the infrastructure. And year six is now the year that we actually are pushing out a, a lot of food. So right now we have rainbow chard in, we have red bali chard. We're cropping out collards. We have dino kale, red boar, star boar, kale. We have hackerai turnips. So we have five tunnels running right now. They're 30 inches wide by 100 feet long. So you can get around 200 plants in on each row if you're doing like a kale or a chard or a collard green. So we have thousands of plants in. Now I'm just thinking about like crazy how much food we have. But we know to remain humble because this isn't even making a dent into the food insecurity issue. We're not even close to getting our goal accomplished. We're just in the beginning stages of it. Like with Ashley, Sankofa Farms was a venture Kamal started after an earlier stint as an educator. I asked Kamal how the idea of starting a farm came about. The idea of the farm came from me learning about just, well, me overall wanting to do something for Black people. And I was reading, um, I read a lot of books, and one of the books stressed that we need to go back to the land and build systems for ourselves. Everything that is of the earth comes from the land. It was a book by Elijah Muhammad. And then I started to read books on Marcus Garvey. I started to look at um, documentaries on, look at consumer information about John Henry Clark, Ivan Van Sternema, Booker T. Watch. I started to research these individuals, Mary McLeod Bethune. So I started to go through a cycle of learning. And then I'm like, yo, these people were way ahead of their time or they were on time. It was me looking at them and seeing what they were saying and then looking at our current state as Black people and looking at how when we needed something, we have to go to another group of people to get these resources. I'm thinking like, well, nobody's stopping us directly from saying, hey, I need to go buy some land. It's just us not collectively having a mindset or a consciousness to do these things that make it so hard. So once I started to see this, I'm like, you know what? I used to present the idea to people about, hey, I want to um, be a farmer. They laugh, they joke, tell me to be a poor farmer. And I think if you just Google Kamal Bell, Sankofa Farms, I think you will start to see a lot of information that will be contrary to the poor farmer idea. So once I started to see this, and I started to see I couldn't really bring people in collectively to make the move, I just went and did it myself. And once that occurred, I don't want to say myself as if I'm the only one. Like, I'm a product of a social system. My wife is very supportive. My friend Devin is very supportive. My best friend Matthew is very supportive. I have close friends that are very supportive. Those urges to do that really propelled me to say, you know, but like, as long as a few people support me, we can take this thing a long way. Over the past six years, Kamal and his team have worked hard developing the farm, creating programs, and building the networks needed to support their work. Now getting food out to local food cooperatives 
and also distributions that have a focus on getting people who are affected by food deserts access to food. We have an Airbnb experience, and we also have a youth academy where African-American males work at the farm and gain life skills and just develop a better overall perspective of who they are and what their role is in this society. Fun fact number two, the Airbnb experience Kamal mentioned is a program called Bees in the Trap which is the best acronym ever. TRAP stands for Teaching Responsible Apiary Practices. Kamal is especially proud of his youth programs, and I asked him why he felt they were important. Agriculture is the foundation for everything else in our society. And having the youth involved, I first thought about it as how hard my experience was with the USDA, and nobody was there to like teach me about their position with Black farmers. So I thought about, well, if I had to go through it, I don't want them to have to go through it. I don't want them to have to go through no programming or no entity that is in control of how we feed our people and feed our community. So for me, it's about teaching them so that they can go further than I did. That's the whole purpose of the academy. But through that, so many other beautiful things have begun to happen where the students are now developing an overall better perspective of who they are as young Black men. And their identities aren't tied to entertainment. They aren't tied to an institution that is going to belittle them. It's tied to Sankofa and how they see themselves in Sankofa. So Sankofa is a space that is literally for us and by us. Kamal is a farmer with big dreams about making a difference because he understands how critical it is to make his community better. Do you like being at the farm? Yeah. What do you like about the farm? The bees. Tell us more. What do you like about the bees? The bees when they raise babies, and I like them when they swarm. You like when they swarm? And when my daddy catches them. Akeem is our little beekeeper, so me and him go through the hives. He has his own Instagram page called Akeem and the Bees. So I think the farm means a lot. On our final stop for this episode... We visit a young farming professional who's been working to address the institutional and financial needs of Black farmers. My name is Olivia Watkins. I am co-founder and president of Black Farmer Fund, and I'm calling in from central Massachusetts. Olivia has quite an impressive resume. She's a social entrepreneur, impact investor, and a farmer with a background in environmental biology and an MBA. Her path to founding the Black Farmer Fund included roles at Soul Fire Farms in upstate New York and Kahumana Organic Farms in Honolulu, Hawaii. I asked Olivia about her journey so far. It's definitely been an interesting journey. I think the one thing that has been consistent through it all is that I've always had a deep respect for our environment. And I've always wanted to be a part of organizations or enterprises that are working towards the adaptation of climate resilience solutions and making sure that vulnerable communities have access to those solutions. My work now is not that much different than when I first started, but the focus now is on working with Black farming communities and access to capital. The reason for that is really about increasing the presence of agricultural businesses that practice climate resilience in order to strengthen regional food systems and decrease food apartheid in BIPOC communities. Her passions for sustainable farming, 
as well as her own experiences as a Black farmer, led her to identify the lack of capital as a major issue that needed to be addressed. Back when I was farming full-time, I used to go to so many conferences and community gatherings, and over and over again, there were very clear and direct asks for support around accessing capital. The current ways to access capital for farmers that are practicing sustainable agriculture or climate resilience are very exclusive or there are too many strings attached. It's just really prohibitive. And so we decided, my co-founders and I decided to look into being able to create an organization that was focused on being able to provide access and provide opportunities for farmers to be able to access capital in spaces that they haven't necessarily been able to. So Black Farmer Fund is a 501c3 community investment fund, and the mission is really to nurture Black community wealth and health by investing in Black agricultural systems in the Northeast. And really our goal is to be able to build out a robust and strong regional food system that can sustain climate change and support communities that are vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change. As we learned in last week's episode, one of the major issues faced by Black farmers has always been the lack of access to capital in the form of loans, subsidies, and debt relief. Talking and even thinking about money matters can be a difficult and complicated topic for communities with a history of being denied access to capital. I mean, the concept of wills and also the concept of financial management and asset management is a construct of white supremacy. Indigenous communities and Caribbean communities, people of the African diaspora, you know, asset management and resource holding and wills and transferring of deeds and stuff, that wasn't really something that was valued in those communities. That on top of the lack of financial education, because our communities did not create white supremacist ways of existing, we have to learn those ways of existing in order to continue to hold on to land and who's going to teach people how to learn that. A really important part of our work is also financial education because there's a clear gap in that. But again, it still is hard to talk about it because it's not innately something that our communities value. You know, our communities have other things that we value outside of resource hoarding. What exactly is impact investing and how does the Black Farmer Fund help support Black farmers? Impact investing is a very, very, very broad category. There's a wide spectrum of impact investing. On one spectrum, you have philanthropic grants, donations, and on the other spectrum, you have publicly traded stocks. And in between is a bunch of different types of ways of doing impact investing. But generally speaking, it's the process of being able to create financial products that distribute money into businesses that are prioritizing making business decisions and practicing business in a way that is ensuring the longevity of our world and our society and in a way that's sustainable. And they're prioritizing those decisions and practices over ones that are more exploitative. To take it a step further, An ideal impact investment ensures that the businesses that are being invested in are able to keep the majority of the wealth and not the investors. So what kind of impact has the Black Farmer Fund made? 
I asked Olivia to share some success stories. There is one farm that we work with called Blackyard Farm that is a small cooperatively owned farm. And they had one of their largest livestock sales to date through a connection we made to them with a Brooklyn-based chef called Mavis Jay, who distributed that food into predominantly Black communities in the Brooklyn borough. Connections like that is really important for us because on one end, our farmers want to be able to directly sell their produce to Black communities. But Blackyard Farm is, you know, several hours away from Brooklyn. So how can we be able to create a network or a market opportunity where they can be able to get that produce to the community that they want to serve? And thus being able to address some of the food apartheid issues that communities like Brooklyn experience. We also have supported a farm called Big Dream Farm. That is a CSA that provides um, access to halal meat for a community of West African Muslim families, about 50 families. And so for them, they weren't able to find halal meat that was processed in the way that their community prefers it to be. And if they did, it was incredibly expensive, prohibitively expensive. So they basically filled up a market opportunity for themselves to be able to provide access to culturally relevant food for the families that they serve. So those are some of the stories that we're really excited about. We're also really excited about a farm called Farm Fresh Caribbean that grows Caribbean produce in New York. So things like callaloo and okra, which is really hard to find and come across. We're really interested in being able to support him with access to markets as he continues to grow, to be able to directly provide food to Caribbean families and other families that enjoy Caribbean produce in New York. I can keep going on, but we're currently supporting eight businesses right now that are doing really amazing things. And they're all really interested in being able to get their products and their produce into the hands of Black and BIPOC communities. Before we wrapped up, I asked Olivia if she had any advice to share with any aspiring Black farmers. When I first started on my path, I volunteered at a lot of farms and I volunteered at farms specifically that were really advertising their farm as a place where they were really looking to do more than just grow food, where they were looking to change the way that people thought about farming or farms that are really invested in being a part of a broader community and are working to support communities with their produce and really being invested in a community because volunteering at farms like that had opened me up to so many different connections and other opportunities to be able to connect with other people who were interested in the food space. And also it was just so great to be a part of a farm where, you know, at Kahuman Organic Farms and during the daytime we would be farming on the land. And then during the evening times, we would be hosting community gatherings with 50 other farmers in the area. And we would get to hear about their issues and what they're dealing with and their offers of support and what they need. And being a part of communities like that and volunteering in communities like that, one, they could definitely use your support always. And two, it's just always a great opportunity to be able to like lean into a broader network of people. Black farmers have been through a lot since emancipation. And though their numbers have diminished because of societal and economic barriers, it's inspiring to see a new generation of people like Ashley, Kamal, and Olivia take up the farming mantle. It gives me hope that the resurgence of Black farming will be more than just a trend. 
This has been Setting the Table with Deb Freeman. I'd like to thank my guests, Ashley Johnson-Geese, Kamal Bell, and Olivia Watkins. Find out more about Ashley's Brown Girl Farms by going to browngirlfarms.com. You can learn more about Kamal's work at Sankofa Farms at sankofafarmsllc.com. And find out how you can help with Olivia's work, the Black Farmer Fund, at blackfarmerfund.org. Saying the Table is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Setting the Table team, producer Marvin Yeah, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researcher Pavan Obasilase, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Katelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amalisa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. Cover art created by Whetstone art director Alexandra Bowman. Our theme music is Who's Back in Town by Sammy Miller and the Congregation. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. Until next time, I'm Deb Freeman. Thank you.